0: I'm Dustin McClure and I'm here today right with Will Slough, and you're listening to the Important Cinema Club. And today, it's our first Shocktober. Ow! <gasps> <gasps> You may have noticed that I tried to make the sound of a chainsaw right there Because we're talking about the Texas Chainsaw Massacre series Nope, not just the first one, which is the one everybody loves But all of them, which is all, way more than you think Everybody loves all of them Yeah, that's right Just like the Friday the 13th series, or Halloween, or Nightmare on Elm Street That's right, folks Leatherface,
1: the original bad boy of cinema, is back
0: <laughs> So, were you a big fan of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre? Where did you see it?
1: I saw it in the year 2009 when I was 20 on somebody's old VHS tape in fact in <laughs> 2009 somebody's dad brought it over it doesn't even fucking matter
0: no yeah uh-huh. well, that's, that's some very interesting context around that though yeah, yeah was it like seven generations and he's like listen man this really happened <laughs> pop it in <laughs>
1: uh, I, I don't recall much beyond that and in fact I had not
0: seen the movie <laughs> since you then. passed out in fear <laughs> yeah that's right <laughs> I mean Texas Chainsaw Massacre was a movie that never really interested me because of all the fans and the reason that they love it so much. Like, ah, man, it feels so real. It feels like a documentary. I'm like, no, thank you. (laughs) Because you don't
1: like that sort of thing. You don't (laughs) like movies that are raw and ugly and want to show you a bad time.
0: Yeah, I mean, I can like them, but it's not something that usually attracts me, especially when it's called the Texas Chainsaw Massacre.
1: So when you saw it for the first time, did you immediately like it or?
0: Uh, I don't know if I did the first time, but I think that eventually when I gave it like it's due and I loved it. And I'll tell you why. It's because that idea of being like real and feeling immediate is not something that I would um, kind of say doesn't exist in the film, but it is so stylized in a way that people always ignore.
1: Well, since we're in shocktober now, since we're talking about horror, (laughs) (laughs) since, since we're talking about horror movies, I want to ask you, what scares you? What scares what, what, me in you, movies? Yeah, what do you find scary in movies?
0: I mean, for people that know me, everything makes me jump. <laughs> I've said this before, that I got to cover my ears when any of the scary parts happen. But as far as something that I find unpleasant to the point that like, oh no, that scares me. Not very
1: much. Are there kinds of horror movies that sort of get under your skin in any way? Or, or are there certain genres that you gravitate towards for, I mean, subgenres. Yeah,
0: well, um, I definitely love slasher films, but I don't, like anything that's real or miserable. The idea of stuff ending like, especially in that kind of like a post 9-11 torture porny era, that stuff that doesn't really interest me because it's the idea of the filmmakers going, hey man, this is real. This is how real life would end. Mm-hmm. Doesn't interest me. And that's not because it gets under my skin or it terrifies me. It's just annoying and I feel like I've wasted my time watching it. What do you like about slasher films? I just like the goofiness of it. I like the kind of structure and the kind of genre genre tropes that go through it. Like, why do I like Like kills? Like,
1: it's liturgy in a way. You watch a Friday the 13th movie and it's like... Oh yeah, uh, here's the part of this movie where somebody- Not somebody...
0: really, I, I, because like the early Fire of the 13th that people really love, I find kind of dull. Uh-huh. I mean, my love for horror can be traced back to the original Dawn of the Dead. That's what I love. And if you can just take all that stuff, kind of the goofiness, the world building, a focus on character- The gore? The gore, definitely. How about the social commentary? Love it, social commentary. Um, But like the gore is definitely something that I love in slasher films because of the absurdity of the situation. I don't like pain when it comes to horror films. That really turns me off. Absurdity of you're seeing something that's not supposed to happen. It's essentially like a slapstick moment and it's taboo in a way that like, oh, you're not supposed to see this kind of stuff, but then you get to see it in a goofy way, like stuff like, I don't know, um, what I thought Texas Chainsaw Massacre was. Didn't really interest me. Okay. How about you? What
1: scares you, Will? I would say something more like Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I mean, look. I don't scare. I'm a big boy.
0: You are a white male of middle-class uh, upbringing. There's nothing to be afraid of. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, I'll tell you I'll tell you what I have to be afraid of. Mm. It's like, have you ever seen a little movie called Land of the Dead where their, <laughs> their gated community in fact traps them? Yeah,
0: that's right. So that the zombies yeah. can get them more I'm easily. I was going to say, you know what Will's really afraid of? Taxes. <laughs> the yeah, tax man.
1: That's right. When, when you get up into that higher bracket, pal, <laughs> you'll find out. Well,
0: not me. But <laughs> so, I mean, you've talked about how Slasher films are not really your thing.
1: Well, I like I like slasher movies. I like some of them, but I mean there is something kind of repetitive about them and the long there are long boring stretches of
0: slasher Yeah, movies. there are like people love certain slasher films and I'm like, yeah, but they're boring in the middle. And I also don't like teenagers that i hate that you th- then get to see murdered i was like why can't i like them and then they get murdered the tropes that people love about it i'm like no do them better i don't like that that much but
1: i think the things that come closest to scaring me this impenetrable man you see before you,
0: <laughs> man of glass are
1: you know things that look sort of like a snuff film mm. you know sn- stuff things that look real and and do ugly. you think the texas
0: chainsaw massacre looks like a snuff film no but it's texturally it feels real it's, right well
1: it feels real it, when But it feels like what this movie and something like Last House on the Left feel like Mm -hmm. are movies that are made by young people with nothing to lose and not a lot of money. And since they have nothing to lose, they are just gonna like go for it. And there's no stopping them and there are no limits to their vision, you know? Mm -hmm. And so that can be sort of scary. I mean, also, like, you know, there are certain sort of Mondo-ish kind of things, or uh I mean, you know, we talked about the taming of Rebecca on this podcast. Things where there's like a sort of sweaty desperation coming mm-hmm. from the screen.
0: Yeah, we talked about it on a Mondo episode as well, the idea of like seeing something real or something that is being sold as real. Yeah,
1: something where there isn't like kind of a safety net. Mm. Um, and I'm not saying I endorse it exactly, but yeah. it's like that, that, that's something I find scary.
0: Because I think that what attracts me to the Texas Chainsaw Massacre now is like the purity of it. Mm. And that if it was shot kind of documentary style, I would have less interest in it. But like where the Dolly move goes under the swing and follows the woman in her rear end like that is a very stylish almost terry gilliam kind of camera (laughs) move and it's those kind of moments with the intensity especially that last 20 minutes where it's just screaming the entire time but somebody like toby hooper he makes it work or toby hooper and his collaborators
1: i was struck on this viewing of of how kind of abrasive a movie it is right from the get-go like the early scenes where it's you know the kids Mm -hmm. in the van and everything the way it's shot you know, just wide
0: angle lenses a lot, like close-up of people, very
1: strange, disconcerting Mm -hmm. angles. There's nothing. And the way it's edited also, he doesn't give you like any sense of security. He doesn't give you a sense of grounding. And also all the characters in it are so kind of difficult and abrasive.
0: Well, I think you're mostly speaking of Franklin, the guy in the wheelchair. (laughs) Yeah. 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 I think that what works for me is that the character is actually not that difficult. They're kind of just people. Like, they don't have many traits. If you had to separate them out in a lineup, you probably couldn't. And Marilyn Burns, who is the final girl, there's no indication that she will be the final person that survives. I guess,
1: guess, so yeah, some of the characters are difficult, but the other ones are just kind of... There's nothing very cloying about these Mm -hmm. characters. There's nothing...
0: Like, they're not like, let's go have sex, or let's go do this. Or, you
1: know, it's not really forcing you... I mean, they become your point of identification, Mm -hmm. but there's nothing... He's not trying to make them lovable. Or, no, they're just know.
0: people. Yeah. And I think that that's what people react to, like, the documentary idea of uh-huh. it. And even, like, the big scares of it when, like, Leatherface first appears, it's almost banal in the way that it's presented. Like, it's just, like, a wide, and he just pops out of a door, and he knocks the guy over the head. And what people remember, is like the guy's leg, like, kicking on the ground as, like, Leatherface drags him back into the room.
1: Let's talk about Leatherface for a moment. I'm sure most people listening to this will know him, but... How would you describe Mr. Face?
0: Uh, A big guy with, um, in in this movie, he's wearing, I believe he's wearing like a butcher's smock
1: the entire time. And he goes through a variety of interesting outfits as the series goes on. (laughs) Yes,
0: he does. And um, personalities, if not um, different perspectives on life. (laughs) That's
1: right. And, you know, there's nothing scarier than a unstoppable killer who's Face is obscured behind just a mask and, and it looks like a shitty mask in the first one you see like his teeth through it and what a mask we've got because it's a mask made out of human flesh
0: <gasps> i mean like one of the things that's amazing about texas chainsaw masker is that like it feels smelly and oh, from yeah. everybody that worked on the film they said oh yeah it smelled because those were real bones <laughs> okay it, it feels
1: smelly before they even get to the house mm, yeah, okay? it like, does. when you're in the and van sweaty.
0: Like, you don't want to be trapped in with these people. Like, the guy that plays a hitchhiker, you see him act, and you're like, is that a real weirdo, or is it actually an actor? Okay,
1: that's the kind of thing I love <laughs> yeah. in a horror movie. I like that sense of, where did they find these people,
0: yeah. you know? <laughs> and, I mean, that guy actually went on to be a voice actor and stuff like that. So of course. He wasn't some crazy actor, but it's that kind of mood that you can't really capture now. Like, Rob Zombie keeps trying to do it, and he just can't do it in the way that people like Toby Hooper or Wes Craven could. Because
1: you've got to be young and desperate. Yes, you know? and you
0: got to be just... Just going out, doing it for the first time, using university equipment. There's so many dolly moves in uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre because the cinematographer said we had never been able to use a dolly before, so we wanted to use it as much as possible. And you've got to,
1: yeah, have have nothing to lose. So the stuff <clears> you're the stuff you're putting in the movie is like, well, I'm either going to be noticed or I'm not going to be noticed.
0: And Texas Chainsaw was famously a terribly organized production. Toby Hooper did not have control over anything, <clears> and I think that actually kind of helps the movie, if not just because it took them longer than they thought it would shoot just like the evil dead it actually took five weeks and that like toby hooper they're like please bring a shot list and one day he did he's like oh no i want to do a different shot instead so that kind of like nervy energy is present throughout
1: you know it's remarkable because yes it has that nervy energy but also the movie is just an incredible crescendo, just a very smooth crescendo. It Mm -hmm. keeps building and building and building until it stops.
0: And it builds to a point that, like, it's not even, like, the big climactic, ah, she turns against her captors. No, it ends with her in that famous shot riding in the back of the car, just screaming her mind just lost, and then you go right to credits. I think that ending, other than anything else in the movie, like, that's what people remember the most. Yeah, because there's no catharsis. No, no catharsis at all. And, I mean, somebody dies, gets run over by the truck, but it feels like Leatherface is still out there, that beautiful shot of him, like, spinning doing the chainsaw dance in the setting sun. I mean, the movie it does feel kind of real to me because, mm. like,
1: there, there is an authenticity to these locations. Yeah. You know, it really does feel like they just went out somewhere. There's and just nothing, shot stuff. Yeah, there's nothing pretty about the house. It looks yeah. like a real house.
0: There's, like, a, a, a point that they see, like, a big thing filled with, like, daddy long legs in the corner of the room and that was just there and they filmed it so they had the actor walk in and be like, what's that? And they put all the weird sounds, mm. like that Polaroid, like, meow, mm. that, like, opens the film. And we didn't even mention the fact that it starts with, like, based on a true story at the beginning which
1: technically because it's ed gein
0: yeah i mean ed gein (laughs) only murdered two people and mostly just had fun um necrophilia stuff so (laughs) fun necrophilia (laughs) Necrophilia stuff stuff. Uh, hey what don't you have your subscription to girls with corpses magazine uh, yeah it's an actual magazine uh, yeah
1: it's under my mattress right now
0: Um, you know, the movie
1: taps into certain, like, I guess, I you know, we've all had the experience of, like, kind of being out and seeing, you know, an abandoned mm. house or something. Yeah. Or, or, or poking e- around a park somewhere. Or, like, you know. the
0: weird gas station that doesn't look like it's open, but there is still a guy right there sitting. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And
1: <laughs> ready to serve you. And thinking, well, what if there's the whole, like, world behind mm. this thing? What if there's unspeakable evil in the basement somewhere? And the way the movie also kind of very slowly or or very carefully reveals the full scope of the evil, mm-hmm. you know.
0: But it's also like a banal evil, like that scene during the dinner, which is Marilyn Burns just like screaming the entire time. There's like humor there where they're like, ah, grandpappy, he can just kill her with one hit. And they keep trying to put like the um, hammer in his hands and he keeps dropping it and he, <laughs> he can't kill her specifically. Like, it's every day for them. It's like weird every day, yeah. but it's only because it's so weird and so terrifying that I think that's why it works. Like a lot of people when the movie came out, they're like, it's not funny. It's so serious. When Toby Hooper was like, "Oh no, there's comedy in this. It's yeah. just that you're not reacting to it in the way that like we were laughing on set."
1: Yeah, and there's no explanation for these people.
0: No, they're just know? like evil people. I mean, the um, screenwriter who go on to direct um, the fourth one, uh, the Next Generation, Kim um, Henkel, actually said that there's no mention of cannibalism in the film in the first one mm. other than the grandpa like licking the um, blood off of um, Marilyn Burns' finger it's just that people assume that's what it's about because of the slaughterhouse uh, imagery that throughout did you notice that one shot of like there's like what looks like documentary footage of a cow mm. just sitting there and I'm like are they gonna show slaughterhouse footage I feel like there's a cut somewhere with that in <laughs> it and someone uh, told Toby like no, no no pull it out
1: well famously I guess it's sort of famous like people always say the movie is not as violent as you think
0: it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know? yeah. That there's not that much gore. Yeah, that it's just like you perceive it to be gore. Like when it's just haunted by death. Yeah, when someone gets hooked up on a um, the meat hook, you don't actually see the back or anything no. like that. It just. It feels like you you have seen yeah. it. And
1: you know, there are skulls and yeah. stuff everywhere, and
0: rotting you did, flesh. I mean, like Leatherface does drop his chainsaw on his leg and it cuts it and there's like mm. um, animal entrails that fall out of it. So, mm. there's a little bit of gorse, which is why I think people remember it. But it was a film that I think wasn't it slapped with an X when it came out Yeah. because it was too violent and it, or just too intense. Well, I like, mean,
1: people then and now find the movie really yeah. terrifying.
0: And it was a huge hit and it was distributed by uh Mafiosos. Yeah, it made 30
1: million. dollars. <laughs> apparently which you know in those days
0: the filmmaker at the time did not see much of because Mm -hmm. it did not trickle down
1: i believe it was the same company didn't they put out deep throat yes
0: they did put out deep throat as well yeah Mm -hmm. um so toby hooper after the success of texas chainsaw massacre he actually his second film eaten alive which sounds like it's in the same territory is stylistically so different it looks like a mario bava movie it's all set at like a hotel in a swamp but it's all a shot on a set mm-hmm. so it has like a full artificial feel and you can tell it's him going like i want to make a movie so different aesthetically from what texas chainsaw massacre was even though people were like no make more movies like texas chainsaw massacre that was a hit because toby
1: hooper has a bit of a reputation of being somebody whose career fizzled out or who never quite Mm. lived up to his full promise or was thwarted in some way yeah i mean by
0: mr spielberg exactly
1: i mean that's the thing you know about him you know he made texas chainsaw massacre and then that Spielberg really directed Poltergeist. Yes.
0: And after that, he had three films that he made for canon. None of them were financially successful. And then he was just in the wind for the rest of his career. He made Life Force, Invaders from Mars. And then finally, one
1: one last return to the well in 1985, he made The Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2.
0: A film that Toby Hooper, from all intents and purposes, never wanted to make. Mm-hmm. Um, he's like, why would I go back to this material that defined me in a way that, like, I know it will haunt me for the rest of my life.
1: Now, I feel like I have more of a relationship with this movie because, I mean, this movie had a toxic reputation for so long. Oh,
0: people hated it. And
1: I remember not long after seeing the first one, renting this movie mm-hmm. and watching it, not expecting much and being kind of blown away by it. It's I, like, this is so fun.
0: I mean, this is a movie that... I think it may be like a perfect sequel Hmm. and I'll explain why is that how do you follow up a movie that is so iconic that like it is considered one of the scariest movies of all time. You can't get scarier like that would be a joke. So what if you take it in the direction that people thought the first movie was (laughs) so you make it like the goriest thing ever and you also play up the last that people did not get the first time around
1: most horror sequels are just regurgitations of the first
0: even one. evil dead 2 is just a remake of evil dead 1 with a different tone <laughs> right
1: and you know all the halloween movies have mm-hmm. just been i mean you know that's the problem the first one is so memorable yeah and then it's all about kind of chasing that
0: yeah that feeling and then people are like oh well it's just a remake of the first one give me something new and then toby hooper comes in he's like all right here's something that has the same structure as the first one in the sense that it's like a woman that gets threatened and then she gets chased for the um, latter part of the movie, the chainsaw family, but is radically different in every other way.
1: Well, it's because she's not chased out of a house, she's chased out of a So she's like a local DJ. Yeah, Stretch
0: is her name. Yeah, Everybody
1: has names like Stretch and Lefty. (laughs) Yeah, Lefty, of course, is played by Dennis Hopper. He is a relative of, you know, some of the victims in the first movie.
0: Franklin, a good callback where he finds Franklin's corpse in a wheelchair. (laughs) Right, right. And he um, he's,
1: you know, a a state marshal or something. I'm I'm not sure what he is. He's a police guy.
0: Yeah. And, you know, he wants to take them all to hell. But what's funny about Dennis Hopper, and I didn't even realize this until, like, I heard Toby Hooper talk about it, which is that he's the most ineffective kind of like a savior in any movie. All he does is make things worse. I know because you keep waiting
1: for him. He's the badass. Yeah. He's going in there. He's got the big gun. He's going to finally take this family down
0: and he doesn't. All he does is cause more and more troubles. He makes the woman stretch, um, play a recording that she has of uh, killing on the radio, which makes the family show up. And, you know, Toby Hooper obviously went in here with like very... Precise ideas if we want to tackle this material and that like stretch. She's screaming the entire time, but she's also incredibly uh, proactive in what's mm-hmm. going on. She actually makes it out, and she actually could completely not be involved with them anymore. But she decides to go to their lair in an attempt to save her friend.
1: Yeah, so the family in this movie are sort of uh, instead of being backwoods, you know, a weird obscure cannibal family they are in fact beloved local meat merchants yes (laughs) and where do you think the meat is coming from
0: this picture is the most 1980s movie ever and like toby hooper knows this like the film starts with the kind of setting of the texas chainsaw mask or the original and then zoom a bunch of yuppies wearing like holographic glasses with car phones and like a convertible zoom by like shooting signs and driving people off the road so
1: the movie is turbocharged yeah it's it's ronald reagan it's cocaine it's
0: star wars It's, it's all that stuff Yeah, And he lets you know right away with like an incredibly gory scene where a man gets half of his head cut off. Mm. Those beautiful Tom Savini special effects with blood splurting all over the place like it's a Japanese splatter film. So
1: Stretch finds her way to the family's lair, which Mm. is this gigantic... Underground playground, basically. It feels like one of those big indoor playscapes and it's you know, a playscape full of death and destruction mm-hmm. and people's bodies and you know
0: You know, this is a film that famously canon was having financial difficulties and the budget was slashed at the last minute. You never know watching it. I mean it looks amazing. It yeah. honestly
1: looks like so the movie it reminded me of, of course, was nothing but trouble.
0: <laughs> it did, yes. A hundred percent it looked like nothing Which, but trouble. And
1: nothing but trouble was much more expensive than this, but this <laughs> looks way better. <laughs> way better. Actually there are more moments in this movie that are like stunningly beautiful and I actually think the movie is you know it's amazing that it was hated so much because it feels a lot like Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom 100% Uh
0: and I think that like what people didn't like about it is that it didn't feel like the first one even though it was the first one they didn't like that it was making fun or having humor in the situation that was very Obvious, like no one is going to confuse this with like, oh, it's serious, but oh, it's also comedic. It is comedic through and through with horrifying stuff. They
1: they didn't like that it wasn't gritty, yeah, and that it wasn't real, and also that you know you see the family is explained a little more. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're not explained, but you see more of them.
0: I mean, like Leatherface
1: is a bit ridiculous in the movie. There's the
0: scene where he's like, you know, he he is is uh, chainsaws his dick. I mean, like. Toby Hooper's taking everything that was subtext or assumed about the first one, like men, women, and chainsaws, mm. uh, the idea that this is just like a roller coaster. And he's like, all right, well, I'm going to make this movie and I'm going to dive mm. right in. So like Leatherface, essentially, his chainsaw is a big dick that he wants to uh, have sex with, yeah, that I, he wants to use to fuck women.
1: About as literally as As you could.
0: You could not get more literal. And the movie
1: is not like a... a diamond bullet like the first one is it's it's shaggy it's wacky and it's all over the place very
0: colorful like a Dario Argento film (laughs) yeah and I think it's
1: like really exciting in the second half in addition to being very funny
0: and it even like like another final fuck you it ends like the first one but it has um, stretch uh, with the chainsaw waving it around as if like things have turned now (laughs) yeah I mean like this movie is so much fun and it has found like an audience that went like oh no you guys were wrong this is good like Mm. it has been rediscovered and I think it's stands pretty comfortably as, like, the classic that it is. I do think that,
1: like, there is... It was a reluctance, particularly at that time, for these like comedy horror movies mm. that's not respecting the genre. <laughs>
0: Whatever. Know. I mean, not that you, I give a shit. You pointed out that like Roger Ebert uh, wrote a review where he was like, "Oh, why wouldn't it be? It should have been like the first one." And it's like you didn't like the first one either. That's so. right. Yeah. That's right.
1: And you know, he called he called the second one, you know, basically like a geek show. Yeah. Like a, a vomitorium. <laughs> yeah. Which is which is fine. I like seeing bodies mutilated. being dismembered, yeah.
0: and you feel like a pathetic sympathy for Leatherface in the movie. There's one moment where they finally capture Stretch and, like, he looks embarrassed about his family. Like, well, that's fun
1: stuff. In terms of the critical reception towards horror movies, there has always been, I think, more of a bias towards kind of the Val Luton style of horror movie, where everything's sort of in the shadows. Elevated horror. Elevated horror, exactly. Yeah, like, <sighs> like,
0: like if if, if it, I mean I love that stuff, yeah. but I don't like the fact that critics will treat that seriously. But then stuff that's like, oh, I want to be a fun splatter film. They're like, that's dumb and goofy. And yeah, and it's base. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But you know, if the cat person you don't see them, then. That's real art. And it's like, all right, come on.
1: (laughs) So the series went dark for a few years, Mm -hmm. but then it came roaring back in 1990. And by Uh, roaring back, I mean... You mean like
0: probably contractually obligated? (laughs) Yeah. uh,
1: Leatherface, colon, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre 3.
0: Which was directed by a filmmaker named Jeff Burr. Who I love, he made um, Puppet Master four and five, a lot of, a lot of uh, Pumpkinhead two, Bloodwing, a, lot, a lot, lot of sequels, Full Moon Entertainment stuff, and uh, this was a movie that they set a date. They got a bunch of scripts written. They hated the scripts. And the date was still set. Jeff Burr tells a story that he went in um, to get the job. They told him, you got it. And he went, yes, I'm going to go see a movie to celebrate. And when he was sitting in the theater, he saw the teaser. I don't know if you've ever seen it. The Excalibur Texas Chainsaw Massacre 3 teaser. Where like the lady like throws a chainsaw in the air and like Leatherface catches it. Huh. And he's like, huh. Was, they already made a teaser for the movie that I have not shot yet. <laughs> oh boy, it's is going to be tough. And he said that it was the hardest job that he's ever had which is uh, I think noticeable in the movie that it is a nothing motion picture oh yeah I'm gonna forget this movie within a week
1: it's it's just it, it is as generic a horror movie as I've ever seen
0: Jeff Burr tells stories that he had a gag where like at one point uh, Leatherface is chasing one of the victims in the movie and then he his chainsaw breaks down and the producer was like no that's too silly we don't want to do that they were like reacting directly to the negative press of Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 and they were like oh we want to bring it back to the original but but like with no style or any kind of personality. Yeah, it's
1: pretty slick. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's not that raw. Yeah. It just feels like a DTV movie. I mean, the plot, such as it is, is it's like, I mean, I'm already forgetting it, but it's like, <laughs> yeah. it's, you know, a, a young couple and they're Break on the down road. down on
0: the side of the road. And
1: uh, there's Vigo Mortensen, who is the uh, seemingly nice guy at the gas station who, you know, wouldn't you believe it? It turns
0: out he's affiliated with the this ba- Texas Chainsaw family. The bad
1: family. And Vigo uh, quite good, I yeah, think. Yeah, I think
0: he's really good. I mean, this film, uh, especially the next one we're going to
1: talk about, a uh, real powerhouse performer. Yeah, let's just go straight to the next one. There's <laughs> Texas Chainsaw Massacre, The Next Generation.
0: Also, uh, it was shot and supposed to be released as Return of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Which
1: is the version that I saw. Mm-hmm. Because, in fact... This movie was released twice. Yes. It was released f- for the first time in 1995 as Return to the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and it was released in 27 theaters. Yep. And then in 1997, it was re-released in 400 theaters, maybe, with this new title re-edited, a lot of stuff cut out of it, mm-hmm. because in the interim it's two lead actors have become very famous.
0: And those two lead actors are Massey McConaughey and... Renee Zellweger. And so they're like, we got to capitalize on this. And so they actually edited the movie down. They cut like 10 or minutes out of it just randomly. The director was not involved at all. (laughs) I remember the standee as a kid so vividly. It was like, it's like a man, but he's like dressed as a woman to look all sexy like. And it's like, uh texas chainsaw massacre is the next generation um if looks could kill he would need a chainsaw i
1: remember this ad because yeah. i used to see ads i used to look at the movie ads in the newspapers mm-hmm. and this this particular movie so
0: vivid <laughs> so
1: vivid because i didn't know what i was looking yeah
0: at. did you also it, see the one of like it's a woman's lips and like a chainsaw that she's yeah. running across from you? Yeah. yeah
1: i saw that one too because that's what the vhs box was yeah and both of these ads, it's like, I mean, Leatherface is a very striking mm-hmm. figure whenever you see him, but he's got a gar- like stockings and a garter yeah. belt <laughs> and he's wearing a dress. And you think, is this a horror movie? Is this a comedy? Like, what is
0: this? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I actually hadn't seen it until a few days ago when I finally sat down and watched it. Same. Because this is a film that famously is hated. I think out of all the Texas Chainsaw Massacre films, this is the one that people dislike the most. And it is actually directed by one of the people who wrote the first one, uh, Kim Henkel, who I think that... You know, I listened to the commentary track uh, he did for the new Blu-ray release from Scream Factory, and he says, like, I didn't want to direct it. They kind of forced me into it. Uh, you know, I don't like directing. And uh, someone on the commentary is like, but... I made a documentary with you at the time. He said, you love directing and you hate writing. He's like, you know what? I hate both of those things. I don't like doing any of this stuff.
1: (laughs) The other thing this movie is famous for is the fact that Renee Zellweger and Matthew McConaughey, when it was (gasps) re-released, their people made sure that they couldn't put their images in in the promos. To
0: this day.
1: Right. Because Scream Factory just tried to put out a Blu-ray and and they did, but they had to recall the cover art Mm -hmm. because the representatives of Matthew McConaughey and Renee Zellweger...
0: There's a like a lengthy behind-the-scenes documentary that it was supposed to be included on the disc because they have the documentarian on the commentary track. And it is not on the disc because I think that people got involved and made them take it off. I think it may still be on the packaging as well.
1: Is it available anywhere?
0: Yes, it's available online. I've seen it online. It's like really raw footage of them on set. Interesting,
1: because I've seen interviews with both of them mm-hmm. this week.
0: Oh yeah. On set or no, no, I, talking about it. more
1: recent interviews, yeah. because this is one of those things that like when they're on a talk show, it's mm. like, it, they, it it's, always it's, comes up. It's and they go, <laughs> it's like,
0: yeah, I did that. I was a young up and coming actor. That was
1: pretty crazy. Yeah. Uh, well, Renee Zellweger was talking about how unsafe the set was and she was like laughing about it. And I will say, you know, there are some shots in the movie. She was saying, yeah, you know, imagine being chased by a live chainsaw. Yeah. And I thought, yeah, uh, you know that maybe that was a little unsafe. <laughs> yeah,
0: <laughs> shooting all nights, everybody's whacked
1: out. She said the movie was a good workout, and I was watching the movie with that in mind, and it's like wow, some of this stuff is really physically demanding.
0: Uh, On the commentary track, they're like, if Renee Zellweger didn't want to be an actor, she could have been like a long distance runner because she could sprint over and over again.
1: Now, I don't think they should be ashamed of their work here because I think they're both very good.
0: Uh, They commit themselves 100%. I mean, you know, William Friedkin should look back at Killer Joe and be like, wait a minute, Matthew, did you just rip that off from A Chainsaw Massacre?
1: Matthew McConaughey's performance in this movie. (laughs) Honestly, I think it's one of his best performances. Like he
0: is going for the Oscar. He is (laughs) incredible. It's like Death of a Salesman. Like, just like, he's just like, oh! just chewing up. <laughs> At one point, he like murders someone and his face turns all red as he's doing. He's like stomping their head with his boot. So, yeah. And actually,
1: that scene is exactly like the chicken wing scene in Killer Joe. Exactly.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So
1: anyway, uh, as you can probably tell, Matthew McConaughey is one of the villains in the movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, Renee Zellweger is, you know, uh, the final girl. She's the young, young girl going to the prom. Uh, She's
0: with her annoying uh, teen friends. They don't matter. They're going to die
1: pretty quick. (laughs) They do die pretty quick. And most of the movie is her sort of being held hostage at uh, the next generation of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre's home. It's
0: kind of like inversed in that like the big long chase sequence actually comes in 30 minutes into the movie. Mm -hmm. And you have this big like Leatherface like crashing through doors, like chasing her off the roof. Stuff you would expect for the end happens there. Mm -hmm. And then like you said, the rest of the movie is like... Almost like a weird twisted version of like a 90s sitcom Mm -hmm. of like all of them in the house. But like domestic abuses um, kind of breaking out at the drop of a hat. Yeah, it's it's uh,
1: pretty, pretty wacky stuff. Mm -hmm. I mean, you could imagine like the Robin Wood essay that would be like, well, you know, uh, here it's it's the 90s and the end of history. And uh, this this family symbolizes. Uh, the bankruptcy of patriarchal capitalism in yep. the family unit. <laughs>
0: there you, you know, go. yeah, what? that's how, that's how I view it as well. Like, yeah, uh, why not? Th- uh, there's some real kind of amusing stuff, like the fact that Renee Zellweger at one point is put in a trunk, and then the uh, person that kidnaps her just goes and gets pizza. The movie's very funny. <laughs> yeah, though. it is funny. It's actually it's
1: got a bit of a John Waters feel. Yeah, but the second I can half.
0: understand that like. You know, I don't know if the director meant this, but it is very unpleasant in a way that I think that people who like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre didn't want a movie to be. And
1: that's another thing I like about it. Yes, yeah, me too. I was—it actually doesn't have any cannibalism in it. No, and it's not very gory, but it's very dirty and ugly. Yeah, and just people hurting each other. <laughs>
0: yeah, in like not fun ways, not yeah. goofy ways, and you know, spending this week watching all these movies other than Leatherface, the third one, it's all, like, um, different kind of takes on this material. Yeah. Which is weird because they don't really break out of, like, the woman being chased and all that stuff and the protagonist. And there's always the scene halfway
1: through where the Mm -hmm. woman, like, runs up to this seemingly safe house and yeah. turns out, oh, oh, this guy is also with the family.
0: But like in Return of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, it's like the wife that has to like, she has like a travel agency in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> and she's the one that brings Renee Zellweger into the situation. Renee Zellweger is great in this movie. Oh yeah. Like there's one scene where she like suddenly takes charge and she's like, no, you fucking sit down um, to like Leatherface. <laughs> and speaking of which,
1: Leatherface in the movie, he's uh, he's portlier than in previous films. Mm-hmm. He is also always in drag. Yeah. Yes,
0: he is. Uh, putting lipstick on. I remember all the people on the horror message boards, they did not like that. Oh, even though yeah. that was always present in the other versions, but never as kind of text as it is in this one. Well,
1: yeah, he's always uh, sexually frustrated, mm-hmm. sexually confused. Yeah. And in this one, you know, he fully embraces.
0: Yeah. Uh, but the thing that people really hate about this movie is the idea that there's like an Illuminati cult <laughs> that's yeah, controlling things. So this, this element of the movie doesn't quite work. <laughs> no. But I can understand, like it's big like metaphorical ideas of like what if the thing that seems simple and random is actually controlled by this like other force Mm -hmm. and on the commentary track they kind of try to like prod the director writer to like explain what's going on and ask the actors on the track like did people on set have any question the actors are like yeah we had no idea what was going on yeah we assumed that it was just something out of our pay grade yeah even this
1: thing that, which i don't think quite works I, I enjoy it in the context of this movie because this yeah. is a movie that's just trying stuff
0: yeah like at one point like <laughs> the Ill- illuminati guy like opens his shirt and he has like three like rings attached to his chest and yeah you're like, what is going on it's so Weird and so, like, in your face, but in a different way than Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. I think if there was gore, people would love it more, but there isn't. So, like, there's no genre stuff to kind of hold on to. It's like you said, it feels like a John Waters movie. Yeah. It's (laughs) it's definitely worth a look. Yeah. I mean, it has a climax that is so baffling involving a plane. Yeah. (laughs) Like, if you've been putting it off because everybody said it sucked, like, go in with more of an open mind to check it out. Certainly better than part three. Oh, yeah. I mean, everything's better than part three, which is a nothingness. But you also
1: checked out the. The Michael Bay produced remake from the 2000s, Mm
0: -hmm, the Platinum Dooms remake zero stars from Roger Ebert. Wow. I mean, I'll say this, that it is a perfect summary of where horror was post 2001, that if you're going to make a Texas Chainsaw Massacre movie, you're going to show the gore. It's going to be colorless. It'll also be immaculate like light shafts going through every um, room Uh, leather face is all like grody and gross looking like stuff happens where like people drag their hands against walls and their nails come off Mm -hmm. in like close up because it wants you to feel it also everybody kind of looks like a movie star like in the way that Marilyn Burns just felt like someone you would meet on the street Jessica Biel you're like oh yeah well she's a movie star she will be the final girl that's what the movie feels like Right. and she looks dirty but in like a made up kind of dirty version so I do think it's really fascinating like what it's trying to do in the time that it's doing it, I think it works. Its biggest mistake is they set it in the 70s. It just makes you remember like, oh yeah, the original's really good. Why is it set in the 70s too?
1: Yeah, Platinum Dunes did a whole series of remakes of they did, you know, Friday the 13th again. They did A Nightmare on Elm Street and they were all just kind of echoes. Yeah,
0: they were. I mean, I think that um, Texas Chainsaw Massacre is pretty successful at what it does and it's stylish in a way as well that's very goofy. Like at one point, uh, it's a woman hitchhiker they pick up in this one. She pulls a gun out of her vagina, puts it in her mouth and blows wow. out her head. And then the camera zooms in from the faces of the people that saw it through the hole in her head and like <laughs> pulls back. That is such like a 2003 kind of thing.
1: Interesting. Well, I do remember Richard Roper praising it for its
0: style on TV. Yeah, so. it was actually shot by the cinematographer who shot the original Texas Day- State on Mascara. Oh, wow. Because at that point, he had become a music video kind of cinematographer and had d- done a bunch of pictures. So it was a very conscious effort to get that guy and do it.
1: Have you seen any of the other ones? Of after course, this? I've seen them all. Oh, <laughs> I see yeah. Texas
0: Chainsaw Massacre the beginning is awful. It's everything that is bad, like the pain and the suffering and the downer ending of, you know, that era of cinema. Just blown up it, I wouldn't recommend it to anyone it was directed by he did the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie He's like he was like a Michael to- Bay guy total hack total hack yeah across the board he did Battle LA remember that it was Aaron I, Eckhart I do remember what a that. boring piece of crap anyway mm-hmm. and then there was also a really weird entry called Texas Chainsaw Massacre 3D now I think the rights reverted to the people that originally owned it so it was a completely different non-platinum Dunes related company and they were like we're gonna bring Texas Chainsaw Massacre back to its roots so like Gunnar Hanks is in it Mm. Bill uh, Mosley, and they actually appear in the movie the movie starts right after the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre ends Mm. but then it jumps to the present in like this really weird like teenagers um, inherit the house um, that the Sawyers used to live in and it has a really weird scene where the um, realtor at one point meets one of the girls and he's like didn't you read the fine print Leatherface lives in the basement. This <laughs> is really goofy. There's a scene where like, at one point they're at a fair and Leatherface throws a chainsaw at a bunch of policemen and they duck and it's like a 3D chainsaw coming around right at the screen. And then when the policemen look, Leatherface is gone. And I'm like, that's what that feels like.
1: Is it supposed to be funny at all?
0: I don't think it is. Okay. It's just like, it's, it's like so committed to being like, it's, it doesn't feel like the original, but they don't want to be the Platinum Dunes version. So it's, kind of nothing. It ends at the end with the main character teaming up with Leatherface against the evil sheriff.
1: (laughs) So yeah, it is its own weird thing. I will say I very much enjoyed taking a trip to Texas. (laughs) That's
0: right. Getting some barbecue.
1: Because I, of course, knew that the first two were good, but I was surprised to find that there were other areas of interest. Mm -hmm. Even the one I didn't like so much, at least shone a new light on the franchise.
0: Yeah. And it's a franchise that I'm curious, like, when are they going to make a new one? And what will that be? I mean, there's been this many movies. There's been no urban Texas on Masker film, which is kind of absurd. That's where you go It's the third one. I think that...
1: The uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre is a a series that is ripe. It's a concept that's durable. I don't see this going out of style. Uh,
0: I think uh, currently with the state of America and the way they consider the South and stuff, Uh, that there's a very interesting uh, take on it.
1: Absolutely. And also, I mean, the fact that, you know, uh, a place like Texas is very urbanized and there are huge divisions between Mm -hmm. the urban and the rural and the suburban areas. Let's, uh, yeah, let's, who
0: owns the rights to Texas Chainsaw yeah, Masker? Jump you, in there. You and me. Let's yeah, do a it. Yeah, we'll write a spec script and we'll just go and yes, shoot uh, it.
1: Is, is Leatherface a mega guy? Does he want to build the wall?
0: Yeah. So, as per usual, you can send us letters at Important Cinema Club podcast at gmail.com. And it's a big announcement, uh, this week, which is, uh, the Blu ray that I'm putting out the, this month. And it is two movies, uh, Flesh Freaks and Kung Fu Zombie. Now, this is for Gold Ninja Video.
1: Yep. Uh, I, I will say this is not an important cinema sim- no. uh, bargain bin classic. Release. It is not.
0: It is an Eagle Claw Essential and another sub-label called uh, The Director's Cult. So, okay, what is Eagle Claw essential? So that'll be martial arts films. Okay. So usually uh, Taiwanese martial arts films. Mm-hmm. And uh, for Kung Fu Zombie, it's a Billy Chong film. And I love Kung Fu Zombie. Yeah, you've seen it. It's super wacky. And um, when I was putting it together, because Will wasn't there, I was like, okay, I'm doing two Blu-rays. I don't want it to you know, skimp on special features. So you have the movie you have commentary with me and a fellow named Brandon Lim who is a programmer of he has a series called Always Asian and Almost Asian At that he does cinema here. that he does in Toronto. And then you also have a VHS copy of the movie that looks different and has different sound that I was like ah, I don't know which version to pick I'll just put both of them on there and then you also have I put together a trailer reel of Hong Kong horror stuff and I did the um, very daunting task of recording commentary over it where I just kind of like rapid speak through 90 minutes of trailers I believe there's 37 of them can't wait <laughs> yep and then I uh, there's one other thing oh there's a little video that I made that's only three minutes long it's a beginner's guide to Hong Kong horror there's also like liner notes, the original art and stuff like that. Oh, and a bonus film. uh, Kung Fu from Beyond the Grave. Another Billy Chong film. I I also like that movie. (laughs) And all of those things have introductions. Is there a secret feature on the disc? Of course there is, but I'm not going to say what it is. You're going to have to check it out to find out. It's actually a really rare one that is known under many titles. Mm. (laughs) And the other Blu-ray release, yes, there are two Blu-ray releases this month. I'll tell you right now that Kung Fu Zombie's 10 bucks, and Flesh Freaks is 15 And the reason that Flesh Freaks is $15 is because... I actually worked in um, conjunction with the filmmaker, so I got like a fresh copy of um, one of the movies that's on the disc. Seven short films that he did. We did commentaries together. And uh, Flesh Freaks is a shot-on-mini-DV film that a filmmaker made when he was 18 in 1999, 2000, and it is, it has such a weird story behind it. It's like a zombie film, and he went to Belize with his parents, who are archaeologists. So he essentially did a cannibal fair thing. he shot like a zombie movie. There and that's like the backstory of the film that's happening in Toronto (laughs) and it's Toronto like you've never it doesn't exist anymore he's hanging out at the old Bloor Cinema it is a film made by an 18 year old but it's Fascinating. He's like a special effects guy. Like when he made the movie, he wanted all the zombies to wear masks like City of the Living Dead. So he made custom masks for all of them. Uh, What's the filmmaker's name? Uh, Conal Pendergast is his name. And so there's Flesh Freaks. And I'm saying like, it's Flesh Freaks, but there's also Kill Them and Eat Them, a movie he made two years later, which is just as fun. It's post-apocalyptic and it's all about like monsters and like a guy style situation. So these are real low-budget movies made by a guy who freely admits that like, he didn't even have a tripod to uh, put on his camera, but... Both these films were distributed by companies. Wow. Uh, they were released on VHS by Sub Rosa Entertainment. So like people know them. Like the the Hamilton Trash Cinema guy, he knew Flesh Freaks and it has its own cult around it. And so these movies, you may be thinking like, "Well, I don't know if I like like, you know, shot-on video films." I made a package that it's all about the context. I call it the director's cult series because I want like these discs to be about the people that made them. So like the commentaries, like we talk about like where he is, what happened. We do a, a 21-minute Q&A where we talk about stuff like inspiration. He wrote liner notes for the Blu-ray. All the special features on the previous DVDs of these movies are released in 2001 that are long out of print, including an archival commentary track. They're on here. Deleted scenes, making (laughs) ofs. I mean, we all love, or you and me at
1: least, we love DVDs that, are like a box that features somebody's career. Yes.
0: You know? <laughs> and I mean, this one really does because it even has like the short films that he made, like when he, he was the age that he made that movie up to a short film that has not been released anywhere yet. An animated film is on the disc. <laughs>
1: My God, Justin, you've sold me. <laughs>
0: yeah. Surely you've
1: sold some people
0: listening. Hopefully. I mean, if you order now, this is actually a limited edition version of it that comes with another disc with, I found a copy. Thanks to Hamilton trash a guy of flesh freaks on VHS. So I captured that. So you can watch flesh freaks on like the VHS. Mode. oh my god
1: it's like the complete mr Arcadian.
0: <laughs> yeah that's pretty much it so you can get both I'm out of breath just <laughs> yeah. so much you can get both for 25 bucks canadian on uh, gold uh like usual they're limited edition so act now or they just might disappear mm-hmm. and if you're like oh, 25 bucks that's too much for those kind of things i should note that like shipping is the same if you get two discs instead of just one so like just get two. It makes sense. Get three.
1: Get uh, one of the remaining copies of oh, the, Sto- the Three
0: Stooges. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So yeah, grab the uh, Three Stooges one, two. I worked really hard on these discs. I don't know if I'll ever do two Blu-rays in one month again. Because <laughs> it was very difficult, but you know, these are real labors of love and like kill them and eat them. It's a brand new transfer of the movie that the director gave me and he had never done commentary on it either. So like that's all brand new stuff. So hopefully you'll check it out. And they're two zombie movies perfect for the Halloween season. Uh, so next week on the
1: podcast, uh, we're we're doing a filmmaker that we actually mentioned a little earlier, perhaps the polar opposite of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre part two. Yes, we are talking about Val Luton.
0: Val Luton is a producer I love, even though people always assume that he directed the pictures. Yeah,
1: he didn't direct. He employed, you know, very skillful directors like Jacques Tourneur and or Robert, Robert Wise. Yeah. Um, but of course... Val Lewton is one of the ultimate producers as auteurs. Mm -hmm. He had a unit at RKO where they made low-budget horror movies. And because he had so little to work with, he created Fear Out of the Shadows.
0: And then he passed away a few years after making those films. So it was like his legacy was complete. Like, this was his magnum opus, and he didn't. He made a few movies after that, but people don't really talk about them. They talk about movies like Cat People, The Body Snatcher, The Leopard Man, Mm. uh, Ghost Ship is one. And if people are like, oh, I'd like to watch these movies, if you have a Criterion subscription, they're all online right now. They were recently uh, uploaded to their service. So Mm. you can watch them this week and then listen to our episode, or you can listen to our episode and then go watch the ones that we say that we love. Very excited to dive in. Yeah, me too. I haven't watched these films. This was one of the filmmakers that I really discovered when I started to... um, go through the library at York University. Mm-hmm. And I don't think i had heard about him at that point. Oh, maybe i had heard about the cat people, but I like the sexy Paul Schrader version. <laughs> and I remember picking a book off the shelf and being like, who's this Val Luton guy? And like reading about him and being like, oh, this is fascinating. Mm-hmm. All right, so that's what we're doing next week. And until then, my name is Justin Glue. Oh, wait, uh, Patreon. We didn't talk about that. Oh, yeah. I'm doing so much shilling. I forgot that we have more stuff to... <laughs> my God. Uh, have the plugs lasted longer than the regular episode? <laughs> <laughs> no, we weren't long on the episode, so... Uh,
1: okay, so on the Patreon, we are talking about uh, another great filmmaker <laughs>
0: You're like Who did we talk about It's been <laughs> so long <laughs> uh,
1: Well we talked about Uwe Boll mm-hmm. uh, The famous worst, the, the Ed Wood Of the 2000s As they called him
0: And we watched Blood Rain uh, His famous Christina Loken Michael Madsen Ben Kingsley movie <laughs> Was it good Did we like it <laughs> Yeah Are we rediscovering him Like an Ed Wood Well you're gonna have To listen to find out Five dollars a month You can go to Patreon.com Slash The Important Cinema Club To become a Patreon subscriber Whew Okay, uh, until next time, I'm Dustin the Clue. I will slow. Thanks for listening.
1: Something I want to talk about in the uh, back matter this week is I would like to go back and chastise my younger self, mm. or I would like to show. Where I'm at on my intellectual journey.
0: Okay, yes. The <laughs> evolution. You're walking down that yellow brick road.
1: Because, you know, you, the listeners, you have followed me for so long. You've followed Justin, too, for so long. You've seen us, uh, you know, love has been gained and lost. Uh, cities have been built and fallen. <laughs> and crumbled. Yeah, like
0: Rome <laughs> just fell. <laughs> Not in a day. It took years, but it fell.
1: I mean, when I started this podcast, I was a young man of, I want to say, 26. I think I was still 26. Mm. Yeah. Uh, very end of the year. Yeah. And now I'm 30. <laughs> yes. You know, much changes in those times. And as I look back on the old episodes we recorded, there there's a... T-
0: <laughs> that you listen to every night to <laughs> lull yourself to sleep. <laughs>
1: There's a, there's a tendency that I've noticed that I find very irritating now, is I'm very preoccupied in those early episodes about the notion of a great filmmaker. You are obsessed with it. What is a great filmmaker? What counts as a great filmmaker?
0: <laughs> I like to point out, much to my bafflement, every time you bring it up.
1: And and I don't know when that stopped for me, but mm-hmm. but to me, as I look back on it now, that seems very very much the opposite. Or, well... If not the opposite, very far from what I now find interesting about movies.
0: Why do you think that was your train of focus at the time? You know, I,
1: I don't know. I mean, when we started the podcast, we're still very interested in the so-called canonical filmmakers. Yes. Um, but when you're interested in canonical filmmakers, it can be easy in to fall into the traps of like reinforcing the canon. You know?
0: Yeah, it almost seemed like you were like, should we talk about this person? Like almost like, yeah. does this person deserve an episode? Yeah, and I
1: never think that way anymore.
0: Yeah, and I remember, I think the first time may have been appeared was in our Elaine May episode. Which is insane now, because, <laughs> yeah. okay, Elaine May, there is no, <laughs> (laughs) more
1: like fashionable filmmaker right now than elaine may and i was like i don't know she only made four movies (laughs) four movies (laughs) Uh, okay and that's crazy because we called the episode we called that episode is elaine may a great filmmaker
0: yes and i think it's because you brought it up
1: i brought it up i was like can you be a great filmmaker if you only make four movies i
0: would like to go back in time and give my answer Yes, of course. It's ab-
1: Okay, absolutely <laughs> ridiculous that I would ask that yeah. because Elaine May has made more great movies than lots of <laughs>
0: films that, that people talk about all the I time. I mean, fucking
1: Peter Bogdanovich.
0: <laughs> well, okay, Paper Moon, Targets. Targets, uh, last, last Picture, picture show. show. What's up, Doc? <laughs> uh,
1: are, is anybody stumping for St. Jack? I don't know. Oh,
0: some people stump for St. Okay. Jack, yeah. So he's Elaine may okay. I would say Elaine Mays are probably better. Okay, than- yeah, <laughs> Elaine May made A, a New
1: Leaf, Mikey yeah. and Nikki, she made... The Heartbreak Kid. The Heartbreak Kid. And I gotta say, in that first, in that early episode, I said I didn't like Ishtar. You love
0: Ishtar now. Then
1: I saw it with an audience, and yep. it all clicked.
0: Yeah, that's right. So four, like,
1: right down the middle home runs. But I also feel like there was an early episode where we talked about Radley Metzger. Mm. And I brought it up again
0: in you that did? episode. That is... That, Ma- I, did, I did not remember Ma- that. Okay,
1: because that's madness. Because I was I was nitpicking about, it. well, does he count as a great filmmaker? Oh, I him?
0: remember, too, that you're like, oh, I wish it was, like, on a steady cam was attempting, okay. and I'm like, <laughs> Mad- "Madness!" Yeah, because
1: I, you know what I said about the opening of Misty Beethoven in that episode. I don't remember and, at all, and and, and, re- and I have not listened to this episode since we did it. But I remember <laughs> it
0: scarred your mind,
1: because I, 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 I'm so ashamed. I remember saying, "Yeah, the opening of Misty Beethoven is like just good enough that you wish it was kind of better."
0: I remember because that was your thesis of that—that that you're like, "I wish Misty Beethoven was better." And at the time, I was like, "Isn't it like one of the greatest porn films of all time?" I,
1: I mean, now I I I don't know what I was what, mm-hmm. what I was on about because I kind of think that like. What, would you change anything about the opening of Misty Beethoven? Beethoven? It's kind of like a a fascinating object as Mm -hmm. it is. Yeah.
0: So, yeah, I wonder what changed and what clicked that probably just doing this week in and week out. It's like, it doesn't matter. (laughs) I think so. Because,
1: Yeah. yeah, doing this podcast over and over again, it makes you think... It's not like just watching movies. Mm -hmm. It's like you have to kind of think critically about movies every week, and you have to, like, make a case for movies every week. Yeah, And you become exposed to different kinds of movies, different kinds of filmmakers, Mm -hmm.
0: different ways of making movies. So we hope that the people listening have also changed, like I have. Don't like action movies anymore. (laughs) Grown past it. Not my thing. (laughs) Nah, that's not true. (laughs) Have you changed at all since the start of this podcast? Uh, Nah, I've always been great. No, I'm trying to think of, like...
1: Because you know, when we started this podcast, yeah. you you very much felt like you wanted to talk about...
0: Stuff that I don't get to talk about exactly. with other people.
1: And and I I definitely feel like there are filmmakers that have been challenges for both of us. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, filmmakers that... Uh, I don't know if I would have like gone out of my way to watch on my own. And mm-hmm. being able to talk about them is very interesting. I'm trying to think of like anything. You know what I really like now? And I think... Did I talk about this last week? Is that like... You know we talked about elevated horror. I do like that idea a lot now of, like, just kind of, like... Slow cinema is something that I've kind of grown even more towards. Mm -hmm. And it's because that, like, fast cinema, I'm like, not fast enough. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So it's like it spins around and I'm like, oh, no, I just want something in, like, someone in control of what's going on. Mm -hmm. I have not moved to my everything needs to be real period. But I'm sure that will happen eventually (laughs) Mm -hmm. because everybody usually gets there. You know, we should just go back and we should do remakes of every episode. (laughs) I
1: mean, there are some that I wish we could.
0: (laughs) Oh, man. Michael Bay and John Woo in the same episode. And it's like 20
1: minutes long. That's madness that we get them in the same episode. And also... I mean, I have not listened to our episode number two on Abel Ferrara in forever, Ugh. but
0: I bet it's bad. Oh, I bet it's real bad. We should do, you know what? Next week, Patreon, Driller Killer should be our subject. Yeah. And we can talk about Abel Ferrara in general. It, it should be. Because yeah. I just watched, uh, or no, I was going to watch The Addiction, which is another, or we can watch The Addiction, which is I, another I Abel Ferrara yeah, movie. i yeah. uh, yeah. The yeah, yeah. Yeah. Abel Ferrara, I remember when it ended after we recorded, I was like, "Ooh, that's not very good. I wonder if we'll
1: be able, <laughs> able to. <laughs> well, because people, like, at least our friends were kind of into the the podcast just as we even as we started and, yeah and, and they're like oh well if they like the able forever episode i guess it's okay yeah, that's
0: right someone was like good episode but it was probably like a like good job <laughs> pat on the back well i mean again i hope the listeners have changed as well it will continue changing you
1: know you know what another one that i regret is the last one i regret
0: <laughs> this is like the apology tour that yeah. we're going on
1: when we did the ingmar bergman episode yes okay I, like i think that we were like you know at least I was very self-conscious about like talking about certain great filmmakers. Mm -hmm. And I, and I was almost kind of like, you know, playing up this idea of like, okay, you know, we're the dumb guys talking about high art yeah, (laughs) and, and, I definitely wish I didn't strike that posture with Bergman. Mm-hmm.
0: I mean, Bergman is, I, I, He's I know. He's very accessible. Yeah, we're going to revisit it, him, but that's also one that's like, ah, like, there's still, and we talk about this every now and then, that it's like, what do we have to say about this filmmaker? Like, what perspective yeah. can we bring Yeah, on that's
1: it? the thing. Bergman is so talked about, so written about mm-hmm. that I think we, the, the angle we were kind of getting at him was, like, yeah.
0: Bergman for dummies. <laughs> yeah, the blue-collar podcast. And hey, that was our, <laughs> we were like, the blue-collar comedy tour back in the day. That hasn't been re- revisited in like years alright that's good yeah. good stuff